What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What I do here is a daily live stream, and I put it out in podcast form. If you want to take part in the live streams, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, or better yet, go to the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Also, check out the website bitcoinandmarkets.com. Sign up for the free tier, get notified of all my content, get a free weekly newsletter. And there you can also become a full member and support me for $5 a month and support this unique perspective in Bitcoin. So I have been in Bitcoin for almost 10 years. I have an economics and business background as well as a military career. So I have a unique perspective, a unique outlook. And if you listen to this whole episode today, you'll get a taste of that unique outlook. So I want to thank everyone that supports over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. If you're new, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Subscribe, like, share, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Okay, let's get into today's show. Today is December 30th, 2022. Tomorrow is New Year's Eve. So uh, last day of the week, Friday, then New Year's Eve tomorrow. So fun times ahead. Hope you guys have fun plans for New Year's Eve, or at least something planned for New Year's Eve. Today, what did I do today? Well, this morning I was uh, got the write-up done for FedWatch yesterday. There's a lot of content yesterday. Okay, so I did an hour-long FedWatch with CK over on Bitcoin Magazine's YouTube and Rumble channels. Um, if you guys don't watch those regularly, I recommend doing that, setting some sort of alarm for 12.30 Eastern on Thursdays. That's when we go live. Uh, yesterday was a year in review, so it was a ton of content packed into one hour. And then after that, I went live here on Telegram and did another hour with my guys here. And we talked, like the biggest part of yesterday's live stream was Zoltan Posnar. We went over his recent dispatch, and uh, I just edited that down a little bit this morning. And it's almost ready to go out. That'll go out a little bit later today. Uh, but today, I was just going to do a couple short stories, talk through a couple Twitter threads. I posted them in the Telegram channel for you guys to look at and follow along if you want to. Um, but just go over those things uh, and then open up the mic and see what you guys have to say if you have any news items you want to talk about or whatever. So, okay, let's get started with the first one. And the first one is from... Alistair Milne, and this is an OG Bitcoiner. I don't know his backstory, okay, but he's been around ever since I've been around that I can remember. And uh, he's always been one of these guys that doesn't tweet a lot, but he's really high signal. And he would say, oh, time to pay attention. And then within the next day, something big would happen in Bitcoin. So he he has his like finger on the pulse and he's an OG. So um yeah, that's just kind of what I know about him. And I'm sure he's got his fingers in a lot of projects in the space as well. Bitcoin projects, because he's a Bitcoiner. But uh, let's go through this thread and talk about it a little bit. So he says, I had a decent track record for predictions until 2022. A combination of macro influence and full retard actions has forced Bitcoin to break most models and completely detach from fundamentals. So let's try again. And I, I agree with this too. I mean, uh, 
2022 has really set a lot of people for a loop. It was not continuing higher at 69,000. You know, everybody was thinking we were going to six digits because that was the timing, you know, the everything worked out, breaking new all-time highs. And then we just didn't. Uh, and of course, we had the deleveraging starting to happen there. And um, it has it really threw a lot of people for a loop, including this Alistair Milne, um, who is an OG. So uh, it's been a crazy, crazy year. I still believe that the Bitcoin halving creates a cycle pattern that is deteriorating with time signal attenuation due to smaller percentage reductions in inflation. The best model I've seen for predicting the price uses an autocorrelation model from this signal. So what's it say? Well, the model had a floor price of for 2022 around 25,000. And that model has already bottomed. 2023 is clearly a year of consolidation and repatriation, as so much confidence has been lost. However, hodling has never been so high. The key is being set, or the price is being set by forced sellers and weak hands. We should see at least 45,000 by the end of 2023, which you might discount due to the damage done. Alternatively, if central banks decide to tolerate higher inflation target, e.g. cut earlier to avoid recession despite 3 to 4% inflation, hard assets may become en vogue again. All right, so let me just stop there and break down some of this. So um, about the halvings and their effect on the cycle. I think the effect of the halvings is not completely you know, driven by the reduction in issuance. It, it, I mean, that was the overriding factor, obviously, early on. But now, as it gets smaller, there is another effect that's picking up, and that is the new cycle that is created around the halving. And every big thing that happens in Bitcoin, you know, when we pass from 18 million uh, coins issued to 19 million coins issued, that makes a bunch of headlines around the world and stuff. So these news cycle events, these news events drive eyes to Bitcoin. And in this year where we have everything is down, I mean, it's the worst year, I think since 1885, I saw somebody say since 1885 for the 6040 portfolio, it is just everything is down. I think when Bitcoin is seen as still here, you know, oh my gosh, the halving is coming up. There's all these, this talk about the halving and Bitcoin's still here. I thought Bitcoin died, right? It makes people look at it again and be like, how is Bitcoin still here? And it's up at $40,000. I mean, that's going to, that makes people dive in a little bit deeper. That gets that marginal person to buy a little bit of Bitcoin. Um, so I think that the halving cycles not only are driven by the reduction in inflation, but also the eyes on it. And price cycles do themselves have built in uh, timings because you get exhaustion, you get panic selling, you get uh, despair. You know, there's all these different mar market, the, the different things that the market goes through within a big, long price cycle. 
that sets a clock as well. And four years just happens to be a really good time frame for that. So um, all of this breathes into itself. So I don't think that the four-year halving cycle is dead by any means. It might get less, like uh, Alistair Milne is saying here. Um, but we have a long way to go still, guys. Um, we have, you know, if Bitcoin, just think like the gold's market cap, uh, I don't know exactly what it is right now, but it's around 10 trillion. And so Bitcoin's market cap being 300 billion, uh, give me a break. We Bitcoin needs to catch up there with gold. So it needs to have at least a 15x, right? What would that be about a 15x? And then to be taken into the halls of, you know, monetary reserve currency, we need to add at least two zeros to the price, you know? And so how long will that take? Is that going to take 10 more cycles, 40 more years? Will I even be alive, right? We, we, this is when you start thinking about these, these cycles, how long is it going to take? And I don't really think it's going to take that long. Once the, once the powers that be, like we just heard about Russia doing this. And then there was another country I just saw a headline that was looking at adopting Bitcoin as it was a smaller country, legal tender. I can't remember what it was now, but uh, you know, there's going to be all these, as soon as the dam starts breaking and people start adopting this, it's going to be repriced very, very quickly. Um, so yeah, maybe the four-year cycle, it will never go away. The next big thing that's going to take us from here to two more zeros on the price is probably going to be some sort of mass adoption movement by uh, large pools of money. So anyway, that's what I had to say about that. And then he said 45 by the end of next year. I mean, we can get a little bit speculative here on the show. And I say, I say we're going to be over all-time highs by the end of next year. I really do. But I'm a perma bull, so take that for what it's worth. I think 45 is is pretty conservative. By the end of 2023, I mean, Bitcoin can go $10,000 in a day, you know? So I think 45 is conservative, but we'll see. All right, where did I leave off here? But with the halving in April 2024, we should see a 150 to 300 K by the end of 2024. If you take a two year view, this is no time to be bearish and is likely peak opportunity for the bulls. I am basically all in again. Things will as usual escalate quickly when Bitcoin breaks its prior all time high and proves its resilience yet again. I believe we are in the equivalent of late 2015 absolute despondency and despair. So that's enough about price. What else? All right. So just uh, to wrap this up, I agree, man. 2015 was like the Mt. Gox bear market was vicious. And that was the only other time since I've been in Bitcoin where I was like, I might take a break from the space. I'm not going to sell. I'm not ever going to sell my Bitcoin. But it was, it was late 2015. I was like, man, um, if this thing doesn't start moving right now, we are going to lose a lot of people from the space and I'm probably going to have to stop spending so much time on this. Um, and that's kind of where we are right now. 
if we drop down to 10,000 and stay there for six months, this space is going to be dead. It's going to be absolutely dead. And if I'm trying to build up my podcast numbers, uh, it's not going to happen when the size of the community gets cut by 75%, you know? So we have to, the price has to turn around for people to stick around. And that's one thing I've always said is price is all that matters. Price is all that matters. You know, people aren't going to stick around in this Bitcoin community and think it's going to change the world if it goes down every year by 25%. It has to go up to keep people here. It has to go up to get, to convince new people to get the marginal person. That's part of the whole argument. You know, Bitcoin is taking the mantle and it's slowly network effects, you know, growing, getting network adoption and stuff, you know, like the S curve of technology adoption. That's part, that is the narrative here. And if that fails, I mean, just like stock to flow failed, if that fails, then what other narrative is there for Bitcoin? Bitcoin need, must go higher. So price is the only thing that matters in the end. And that also goes for evangelism. Like if you want to spend a million dollars evangelizing Bitcoin, it's better just to spend that million dollars and buy Bitcoin because that will push the price up and that will get those people naturally to pay attention to the market. The example I've used is people that I have uh, convinced to put tens of thousands of dollars into Bitcoin and then they sell at the first dip. So evangelism is, is hard to do. And it's, it's always better in my mind just to buy the Bitcoin, put that effort into making more money, whatever you're doing and buy more Bitcoin. And then that way that will push the price up and, you know, number go up is the best evangelism possible for Bitcoin. It's the best evangelism. It's the best way to pay dev developers too. I think that if if a developer owns Bitcoin and then that value of their holdings goes up, you know, that's reimbursing them for what they're doing. And so uh, it's a very good way to pay developers to get developers really having skin in the game and owning Bitcoin. So anyways, uh, let's continue with this. So that was his price stuff. Now he's talking about uh, other than price, he says, safe bets. Mt. Gox releases BTC to creditors finally, causing FUD and short-term opportunity. So I don't know exactly how many BTC they're going to be releasing, if it's 200,000 or something like that. Because um, remember, Mt. Gox lost 800,000. But we'll see. And I guess the FUD would be, you know, they're going to sell. But I don't know if that's the case. Um, I think it would be less selling than people think. Okay, SBF will try to do a deal in return for a guilty plea and much to everyone's annoyance, get a reduced sentence. The prosecutor just wants an easy win rather than a messy trial. And this is what I said on the, the uh, Telegram channel. I think this was yesterday, maybe. Um, I said, Bitcoiners are going to have to get a little religious and think about these scammers, all these bad people they're going to have to get their justice in the afterlife because they're not going to face justice here. I mean, this Caroline Ellison or whatever her name is, she is already making deals. I don't even think she's been charged. And Sam Bankman, he knows so many people. Nobody wants to give the money back. Nobody wants it to get clawed back, right? So he's going to do some deal and get a slap on the wrist. So if you, you can either, either let this 
lack of justice drive you insane. Or you can you have to become religious. And I've always thought that religion also matches with Bitcoin very well because Bitcoin is a part of nature. It was released by Satoshi Nakamoto, this anonymous person. And it it's just has like religion built, uh, like written all over it. And so anyways, that's not here nor there. Let's keep going. He says, uh, moderate risk. Craig S. Wright will flee the UK or face jail for perjury. Okay, whatever. I haven't really followed that all that much. I mean, he's a fraud, but that's about all I know. There will be a Litecoin having rally, which will baffle most, confirming we're in a sixteen to uh, 15 to 16 cycle. So back in 2015 and 16, Litecoin always seemed to rally before Bitcoin. And it gave this signal like maybe two weeks before Bitcoin, Litecoin would start rallying. And uh, Alistair is saying here that that's going to happen again. Litecoin is going to be the signal uh, for the bear market, which is kind of interesting. And it does make sense in a, in a little bit of way there because, uh, you know, Litecoin's market is so much more shallow than Bitcoin's market. So when there's a, if these markets are correlated and there's a fundamental shift in market psychology that doesn't quite affect Bitcoin's price yet because it's a little bit deeper market, it's more liquid, it's going to affect Litecoin first. And Litecoin will rally pre-sympathetically to, that's a weird term, weird term pre-sympathetically to uh, Bitcoin's change. And then Bitcoin will eventually have to follow that. Uh, that's very interesting. And I can see that happening. Okay, he says, Twitter will integrate a Bitcoin wallet with Lightning enabled. And I, th I think that's a given. It's just a matter of when. High risk. So this is, I guess. So what is he saying? This is high risk as in not coming true or it's, uh, high risk of, oh, it's it's less likely, I guess. One or more notable banks disclose their Bitcoin holdings. Okay, probably. SpaceX will float, revealing their BTC holdings for the first time. Okay, that's interesting. I can see that. Facebook finally integrates a crypto wallet somehow. Will emphasize, will not emphasize Bitcoin because of the Winklevoss. <laughs> but the majority will use Bitcoin. GBTC gets closer to fair value in 2023 thanks to their tender offer. Doesn't go to a premium until 2024, causing Bitcoin to start to fly. The SEC attempts to stomp on this effect, granting their ETF application finally, but only when it is at a premium. That is a very interesting theory. I can see that happening as well. I think GBTC turning into an ETF is probably the most likely way to do it. And 2024 seems like a decent timeline, especially if Bitcoin is going up drastically and GBTC is at a premium. You wouldn't want to do it right when GBTC is at a at a discount by 50% or something like that. Let's, what else does he say? Overall, I expect VC coins to remain unpopular given how screwed people have been by them. We will probably see the trend of in dino coins continue as these have been through a few cycles and have a fair distribution. Okay. Dark horse for 2023 is Monero. Why not Litecoin? He just talked about Litecoin. Yeah, so these dino coins like Litecoin, Monero, um, 
I guess the earlier pure altcoins that are just pure, not like platforms, they're pure, pure altcoins. Those will have a resurgence like Doge. I mean, one thing that Doge has going for it is I don't think they have a development community. I don't think they have, they have not pushed like an update to Dogecoin in, I don't know, four or five years or something. It is completely ossified and it is proof of work, I think. So that, I mean, that's a couple things going for it right there. And so if you had to pick a number two coin, it probably had to be Litecoin and then Dogecoin. So the, the next thread is about Japan. And so this is a complete change of subject here. So that was Bitcoin. Um, this is going to be back into macro, back into interest rates, um, into geopolitics almost. I mean, macroeconomics, I guess. And um, yeah, so this is about Bank of Japan and their interest rates, what's going on over there, their monetary policy. This is a thread from Stackholder or Stack Hodler, and I did put it into the channel there for you guys. So here we go. Bank of Japan just set a new monthly record for bond purchases. They bought more than $128 billion. This is billion dollars in Japanese government bonds this month. And today was the third day in a row of unscheduled purchases, including two-year and five-year bonds. Why it matters. And then he wants to tell us this. So let me put a chart. I'm going to pull up the 10-year because that is the one that is pegged. And we'll go to a daily, see what's been going on here. Let me clean up the chart a little bit. So, I mean, it doesn't look like there's been a ton of stress I wonder what they're looking at. Let me take a look at JP. It's a ticker JP05 year. And I guess it's it's acting a little bit more like it wants to go up. I'll post this chart as well. That's the five year. It's a little bit higher here. Yeah, this is very interesting. So remember just, what was it last week? They raised that window or the peg the range that they were pegging the 10-year treasury yield to and they raised it up to zero point uh, yeah plus or minus 0.5 percent and a lot of people were saying that that was a hawkish move but really i think it's slightly dovish and we'll get into we'll get into that and talk about is this hawkish like people are thinking is this a bad thing is this a good thing But uh, let's continue. Japanese capital has propped up foreign debt and equity markets for years. Ballpark figures, Japan has greater than $3 trillion in foreign equity and greater than $5 trillion in foreign debt instruments. But what if the capital goes back to Japan, enticed by higher yields? The YCC policy means Japanese bonds have had a price floor since 2016. The global market participants have baked that floor into their calculations, whether they know it or not. If there are big changes in or to the YCC, that's the yield curve control policy, all your models are destroyed, completely devastated. All right, so just to break that down here a little bit is, yeah, the the price of bonds 
could fall dramatically. So why would that entice more capital? They entice it for the coupon rate? Probably not. There, there's liquidity characteristics, you know? You don't, So not only baked into the cake, baked into these calculations that he's talking about here uh, in the models is not just coupon rates. I had to you know, hit the table on this one. Not just coupon rates. People want U.S. treasuries or they want collateral in general that is liquid. If the Japanese are having trouble, having problems, and the value of their bonds are crashing, why would that entice people in for a measly little few tenths of a percentage point in coupons? It's it's crazy to say that. All right, let's continue here. Spiking Japanese yields would lead to rising global yields or falling bond prices. Maybe. But why do bond prices rise? The interest rate fallacy, remember. Why do bond prices or why do bond yields rise? Because there's growth there somewhere. It's good. It's good for the economy. Yields rise when there is growth, when the money is easy. So if they're fighting bond yields, that means they're fighting like good economic conditions. And as we read through this, you'll see why this is kind of a catch-22 for them. But all right, rising global yields would worsen the sovereign debt trap in the medium term and in the short term would cause global market chaos similar to the gilt market blow-up we saw in the fall or worse. The BOJ insists they aren't turning hawkish, but Japanese inflation is the highest it's been since 1981. And the unscheduled bond purchases in the past few days are an indication that traders believe the BOJ will be forced to let yields rise sometime in the near future. Again, bonds rising means money is not tight. Money is loose and growth is happening. When yields go down, it means that expected profits are going down. If, you know, if profits are going up, they can support a higher cost to borrow. So the borrowers, you know, if their profits are growing by 10% a year, they can afford a 5% yield on a loan. It's that when profits are so low, they can't. So rates have to be lower. All right, Japan can't afford to turn hawkish. They are so loaded with debt that an increase in rates will make their fiscal situation even more of a joke. But they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Okay, so this is where I was talking about. They are so loaded with debt that an increase in rates will make their fiscal situation even more of a joke. Okay, for them to grow, they need to let their rates go up. They, but they can't do that because then they can't service the debt. You see the catch-22 that's at the end of a credit cycle? This is the end of a credit cycle problem. The debt trap. They can't get out of it. They can't grow, but they can't allow themselves to grow because they can't afford the payments. It's crazy. It's crazy. But if this is happening in Japan, this is coming to the U.S. in four or five years. This is exactly where the U.S. will be after this next, if we go into recession or not, when we get through this next couple of years, this is the place that the U.S. will be at. 
All right. Um, few understand the financial chaos that would be unleashed by significant changes to Japan's yield curve control policy. Global asset prices and really the whole fiat system are largely held together by the money printers in the land of the rising sun. That's why all eyes remain on Japan. But remember, if rates are low, that means money is tight, not loose. As rates are rising, it means that's when money is loose. So no, I don't believe this, that the whole fiat system is in danger of the money printers shutting off in Japan because the money printers aren't on in Japan. You know, that's the exact point. They can't get growth. They can't stimulate their economy. All they have that like, you know, they have stacks and stacks and stacks of casino chips and the rest of the world is like, whoa, that's, you know, that's not really money printing anyways. Okay. So now what I'm going to do is open it up to you guys over there on telegram. Tell me where I'm wrong. (laughs) Bring up any topic you want, any news item. It is Friday. All right. Going once, going twice. That's going to do it for this episode, guys. Thanks for joining today. Hope you guys have a great weekend. If you're listening on a podcast app, check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. Check out the Telegram group, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. And I'll see you guys on the next one. Bye.